I want to start by uh, talking about uh, Joshua, our son, and the reality, if you're a parent, you'll, you'll know this reality, that there's nothing better as a parent than when you're out shopping, you find a place, you find a shop, you find a shopping mall that has one of those little toy pens for kids, you know, like I never used to notice them before, but now it's like our, our, our agenda is ruled by which shops have these little toy pens for kids. And we find ourselves shopping in all these random places because simply they've got a place there where Joshua can play, so we spend ages in this particular uh, shop. And it's a wonderful thing, but the challenge comes when Joshua has to play with other kids in the toy pen. You know, I mean, it's fine if he's just playing by himself with a bunch of toys, but then you have these other kids that come in and, you know, you kind of move as a parent from just this sitting back posture to almost crouching, ready to have to dive in, you know, if something goes wrong, if, if there's any kind of bad behavior at all, you feel like you have to be so on edge because you've got to dive in and solve the whole problem. And so you're constantly making sure that your kid's playing nicely and that he's, you know, they're not, not grabbing too many toys and they're not pushing and shoving and hitting. And there's also this unwritten rule that I'm figuring out with parenting in these situations where if your child is the, the, on the receiving end of any bad behavior, you're expected to really downplay it. You know, have you experienced this? You have to just act like it's nothing. You know, like if, if your kid gets pushed or shoved or whacked or has a toy, you just have to jump and go, oh, no, no, that's nothing. Don't, no, don't worry. Don't worry about that. That's fine. Don't worry. You know, he wasn't really playing with that toy anyway. Or, or that, that, don't worry about the blood spurting out of his arm. He's fine. <laughs> nothing. It will be fine. It's just, it's just a flare, just a scratch, you know. And it's, you have to learn, you know, how to, how to deal with these situations so everybody gets on. And I was thinking as I, as I looked at the situation of Joshua playing in a toy pen, that what, what we're observing there, maybe, in a very simple way, is a picture of how our society works, how our economy works, maybe even how the world works. There's a certain number of toys to go around. Uh, we've got to figure out how we can exchange these toys in meaningful ways to, to satisfy our mutual demands and desires, and uh, in the process, we've all got to learn to play together nicely. That's basically economics 101, as far as I can figure it out. It's a nice, simple way of thinking about economics, and, and you could probably extrapolate that to a global level. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of toys to go around globally, and we've got to figure out ways of distributing these, allocating these, so that everybody has enough and everybody can get along. That's basic economics. Now, there is, when, when you think about this, this scenario, you think about all of us living in this big toy pen and, and trying to work out how we deal with our stuff and how we deal with stuff in general. Most people have a particular starting point, a particular way of looking at their stuff and looking at the world's stuff in general. And the basic assumption, the basic fundamental starting point in economics a lot of the time is scarcity, the idea of scarcity. And scarcity basically says there's not enough to go around. There's not enough toys in the toy pen for everybody. You have, globally, a limited amount of goods, services, resources, and you have an unlimited amount of human desires and wants and needs. Human desires are endless, but our resources are limited. So you have limited supply, and you have unlimited demand, and that creates the conditions of scarcity. And that is the fundamental assumption in, in modern economic theory, the problem of scarcity. And, and this resonates with you on a day-to-day -day level. I mean, you and I know you've, you've got a limited household budget. 
you feel that there's a scarcity, right, of all the things you want to spend money on and buy and purchase and upgrade and whatever, and, and, and you have limited resources. And your business has limit. You can't just go out and buy whatever capital purchases you want to. You're limited. Uh, the church has a limited budget. We understand this idea of limited resources, this idea of scarcity. But the problem is that scarcity has become a way of looking at the world. It's become the starting point for looking at the world. It's become in itself almost like a worldview. And when scarcity becomes a worldview, it leads to certain ways of thinking, certain ways of acting towards our stuff, towards the things that we have when we are driven by this scarcity mindset. I want to show you how this works from the biblical story. In Genesis 42, we have the story of Pharaoh. He's the king, the the leader of the whole Egyptian dynasty at the time. And Pharaoh has this dream, strange dream. Joseph comes and interprets the dream, and basically the dream means that in Egypt, there is going to be this seven years of abundance, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. Seven years, everything's great, seven years of famine. And God says to Pharaoh through Joseph, this is not a problem because all you need to do is during the years of plenty, during the years of abundance, you just store up an extra fifth, another 20% of all the, the grain and produce from Egypt, so that during the years of famine, you've got plenty. You've got enough to, to, to see you by. Pharaoh immediately looks at this situation through the lens of scarcity. There is not going to be enough. We've got a problem Times are going to get really hard, and there's not enough to go around. It throws him into a panic. And so what he does is he gets Joseph, during the years of abundance, not to store up just 20% of the crops and produce, but a huge volume, so much that we're told it's like the sand on the seashore. It can't be counted. Records could not even be kept to measure how much stuff Pharaoh stored up. So he basically controls the entire food supply within Egypt to get themselves ready for this seven years of famine. Then when the seven years of famine come, what Pharaoh does is he hikes the food prices so high that nobody can afford it. And everybody goes completely broke trying to purchase grain to see themselves through. So the people come to Pharaoh or come to Joseph, who he's delegated authority to, and say, we're completely broke. You've ratcheted up the price of grain so much, we don't even have any money anymore to purchase the grain we need to live. So all we can offer you now is our livestock. And Pharaoh says, yep, that's fine. So people then sell over their livestock, basically their assets. They they sell over their livestock to Pharaoh until he controls all of the livestock, the assets within Egypt, in exchange for more grain for the people to survive during famine. That runs dry too. And the famine's continuing and people still have nothing. They've sold, uh, they've given the money away, they've given their livestock away, they still have nothing. And finally they come to, to Joseph and they say, we have nothing left. The only thing now we can use to, to bargain, to, to barter, is ourselves and our land. And so they sell themselves, by Genesis 47, they sell themselves into servitude. They sell themselves into slavery to Pharaoh. And that's the beginning of how Israel becomes a slave people in Egypt because they, along with the rest of the Egyptians, it's all there in the, in the, in the last chapters of Genesis, they sell themselves into slavery. So Pharaoh, by the end of Genesis, he's got all the land, all the people, all the livestock, all the money, the entire thing, and the people of Egypt are in slavery. That's where a scarcity mindset leads. Because if you believe that there's not enough, there is fundamentally not enough to go around. If you believe that economics is just a zero-sum game and I have more, you must have less. If you have more, I must have less. What does that instinctively lead you to do with your stuff and your money? Grab it, right? This basically leads to an attitude 
of tight-fistedness, where we hold on to our money as tightly as we possibly can. And yes, we're still pursuing the next thing and the next thing like we talked about last week. We're always disposing of stuff in order to get the next thing. But while we've got our stuff, and certainly with our money, we are grasping it as tightly as we possibly can, not wanting to give anything away unless there's a fair return, unless I'm getting something of equal or greater value. It leads to this gripping of what we've got. And it eventually leads us into a form of slavery. This is the irony of the whole story with Pharaoh. Is the, the Israelites, the rest of the Egyptians, are selling themselves into slavery, but it's Pharaoh who is the true slave. It's Pharaoh who is actually in slavery. To all this hoarding, to this greed, to this controlling, to this tight-fistedness, he has become enslaved. This is where tight-fistedness leads. This is where this attitude of having to clutch so tightly onto my money and my stuff, it leads you and I to be paranoid about the possibility of losing any of it. It leads us to be paranoid about the thought that we might ha- not have as much in a few years' time, or we might lose some in some investment, or someone might take, or whatever. We, we just, this is what keeps us up at night, the thought that somehow our money might not be all that it could be. This clutching, this tight-fistedness takes over. And the irony seems to be that the more we have, the more people accumulate, the more tight-fisted they become. You would have thought this was the opposite. You think the more stuff you've got, the more money you've become, uh, the more money you've got, the more generous you would become. I was talking to a lawyer the other day. He said, of all his clients, the ones that niggle the most over the bill, the ones that pay the latest, are the richest. The ones with the most money, the most capital, the most means, they are the ones that just are so tight fisted. It's like the more stuff, maybe this is why the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's like the more of it we have, the more strongly we want to control. This is what you see with Pharaoh. The more he's got, it's like the more tight-fisted he becomes, this thing becomes a disease within us. The the scarcity mindset, there isn't enough to go around. It leads us to look at the toy pen and say, there's not enough toys, so what am I going to do? I'm going to grasp the toy that I've got as tightly as I can. Whatever toys I've got in my little pile, and you see kids doing this all the time in the, in the toy, whatever toys I've got around me, I'm going to guard them, and I'm going to like build a little fortress. I'm going to grip this toy with white knuckles, and there's no way that anyone is getting it. We become those children. And this is how we live, and this is how we run most of our life. And I would argue that this comes out of a scarcity mindset. And I think the Bible invites us into a different story. I think it should unsettle us as Christians that scarcity is the fundamental assumption in economics. Because we have to ask, we should ask, what is a Christian view of all this? What is a biblical view of all this? Unless economics and my stuff and my money is completely bracketed off from the gospel and, 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 and God doesn't care about it, which I think we'd agree is not the case, then the gospel and the scriptures should give us a way of looking at this. And what I want to do is set this idea of scarcity next to the biblical story. Because what we see in the Bible, the God we meet in the pages of Scripture, is not a God of scarcity, but a God of abundance. And I think our fundamental starting point in thinking about the world's stuff, thinking about our stuff, should not be scarcity. It should be abundance. You can't read the first two chapters of Genesis 
and get the idea of scarcity. What you find is a world full of abundance, a world that is teeming with life, a world that is so full of fruitfulness and overflowing with resources for humanity. Psalm 104 is a psalm about creation. It just goes through the way God gives everything to everyone just as they need it. And and some of those verses talk about God opening his hand and satisfying the desire of every living creature. This is our starting point, that God is a God of abundance and that he has given us a world and he's given us a planet that has enough, that produces enough. We get this idea in our mind, there's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. There is enough food being produced in our world today for every person on earth to have 2,720 calories every day. More than almost any person needs. And certainly more as you average it across than we need. There is an abundance. The problem is not on the supply side. The problem is with distribution and demand. The problem is what we talked about last week, that we have become as a society hyper-consumptive. That in Western cultures, we keep consuming and consuming and consuming far beyond what we need to consume and disposing of stuff far beyond what we need to dispose of. The problem is that wealth and resources are so concentrated among rich elites and they don't get to people that need them most. But fundamentally, behind and above all of that, God is a God of abundance and he has provided enough and he provides enough for you and I and there is enough and there is a surplus if we'd look to him. This, I think, is part of what God tried to teach the Israelites when he brought them out of Egypt. He brings them out of this economy of scarcity, out of this economy that's been ruled by Pharaoh, premised on scarcity, they've become slaves, and God brings them out, and he teaches them this lesson in Exodus 16 by giving them manna to feed them in the wilderness. And that's not, I think, just a cute little story of God waving his magic wand around. I think you get this idea with the manna in the wilderness, of how God is and how God works. And he provided each day from heaven just enough for that day for each person. Except on Friday when you could go out and you could take twice as much so it would get you through the Sabbath as well. But every day just enough for every person. The only problems came when people took more than they needed or took enough for more days than they needed and then it started to rot and it went moldy and it went off. But as long as you just took what you needed for that day, you were fine. In one sense, you could say the manna was a scarce resource. It was a limited resource. There wasn't an endless supply of it, but it wasn't scarce because there was enough. It was sufficient. As long as people weren't hyper-consumptive, there was enough. God is a God of abundance. God has provided enough. That should be our starting point in thinking about our stuff and our money. And I would say that when you get this idea of abundance in your mind and your heart, it starts to lead you towards different ways of treating your own money and different ways of looking at your stuff. There's a passage where this all comes together in Deuteronomy 15. If you have a Bible, flick over there. Let's read some verses from Deuteronomy 15. Here are the Israelites on the edge now of the promised land almost about to go in, just about to cross the river, just about to take possession. God, through Moses, is giving them some final instructions, a final big pep rally before they go in and take the land. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If anyone is poor among your people in any of the towns of the land that the Lord is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed 
and freely lend to them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your people and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and will be found guilty of sin, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards those of your people who are poor and needy in the land. So you have this idea of, on the one hand, tight-fistedness, clutching and keeping and grabbing. On the other hand, open-handedness. And behind these two postures are two views of the world. I think what God is saying to the Israelites is, you've seen two systems at work. You've lived it. You've experienced it. You've seen the economics of scarcity at work in Egypt. You've seen what happens when people have this fundamental view, there's not enough to go around. I've got to grab, I've got to clutch, I've got to hoard, I've got to be greedy. You've seen it work and you know it because you've lived in slavery under it. And then you've seen the economics of abundance in the wilderness. You've seen God as a provider. You've seen that there is enough. You've seen the sufficiency of his provision. And now you've got to make a choice. Which way are you going to choose? Because they both lead you down different paths. If you are committed to the idea of scarcity, you are going to continue to be a tight-fisted person. But if you are convicted of the abundance of God, then you are set free to become open-handed towards those who are in need. This wonderful posture, this image, that freely we've received from God, and freely we can give to others. But there's no point me preaching a sermon to you on generosity and open-handedness if we are not fundamentally convicted of the abundance of God. They go together inextricably. There is no point in me saying, just go out there and be generous people. If we are still being driven by the economics of scarcity, it won't work. We need to be grounded and established in the abundance of an abundant God who then gives us the ability, out of His sheer grace and provision, to be abundant towards one another. And open-handedness is that posture where we say, I can start to let go a little bit of the stuff I have and not clutch so tightly onto what I own, but I can be set free from slavery to my own money and slavery to my own stuff. And I can start to allow money to move through my fingers just a little bit more and look for opportunities to be open-handed towards others. Open-handedness looks at the toy pen and it says... There are enough toys after all. And I don't need to guard this little pile. I don't need to clutch with white knuckles this particular toy I'm holding on to. There's an abundance, and I can be open-handed. I can be generous. I can share, and I can freely give. I know this isn't easy. I don't find it easy. Anna's way better at this than I am. We'll sometimes have particular needs that come across email or we hear about people that are looking for financial support or going through a hard time and Anna will mention it to me and say hey uh, you know somebody you know maybe we could make a contribution maybe we could be make a donation and my first reaction is always the tight-fisted always you know just for some reason it's my default I've got a lot of work to do as well I just immediately I want to say do you not know have you not heard the budget 
The household budget is tight. We don't have, there's no way. Look at, look at all our expenses. Look at the mortgage. What are you, crazy that we can just give this? But she, and she knows now how to play it because she just, at that point, she doesn't say anything. She doesn't try and argue. She doesn't try and debate because she knows that God's going to work on me over the next day or so. And I just kind of have this sense over the next 24 hours that, you know, I don't need to be quite so tight-fisted. God's a God of abundance. And maybe I can afford to be a little more open-handed. It just leans us back so much in a posture of dependence on God. This is the other side of open-handedness, that we've got to trust God can look after me as I'm open-handed towards others. It immediately causes us to fall back upon the provision of God. This is why when Paul's writing to the Philippians in Philippians 4, he's thanking them for their generosity. He's thanking them for their gifts to his ministry. And then he says, and I trust that my God is able to provide for all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the other side of open-handedness, that we can trust that God's going to look after you, that he's going to be faithful, he's going to provide for you. And as we become open-handed towards others, God is gracious to us and God will look after us. I'm not talking about being reckless with our money. I'm not talking about just throwing it all away and just giving. I know that there are serious financial responsibilities that we have. I know there are real financial pressures that we're under. But it's just assuming this basic posture of open-handedness and just being sensitive to times when there might be needs that arise and knowing that I can trust God to provide for me as I exercise open-handedness towards others. Maybe it's looking out for people you know that are in need. When Anna and I first went to the States, we uh, got picked up the first night we flew into Cincinnati. We got picked up by a pastor at a local church there. We'd never met him. I had a brief email discussion with him. uh, And he said, I'll pick you up at the airport and take you to your apartments. That was great. He picked us up and he said, oh, just on the way to your apartment, we've just got to swing by the church if that's all right. Just got to grab something. So we pulled into the church and we walked into their foyer. And an entire corner of the church foyer was just full of, of boxes that just had written on them, the New Zealand couple. <laughs> and this, these boxes were full of stuff for our apartment. Like, just fully, almost fully furnished our apartment before we even got in there. Appliances, cutlery, the whole thing. And we just loaded up these boxes into his ute, took them to our apartment. The church didn't know us. I, I, I wasn't working with them. There was not even an expectation that we would attend that church. But out of the abundance of God... This church had decided that this is something they could do to be open-handed towards us. And it was an immense blessing, such a humbling thing, quite difficult to receive in some ways, but just an incredible show of generosity. Is there someone around you that you know of that you could show open-handedness to? Is there a family that's struggling? And I know there's many ways to be generous. It doesn't just have to be through giving money away. But I am focusing on that because I think the hardest thing we find to part with is our money and our hard-earned cash. Somebody said that there's three levels of salvation. First the head, then the heart, then the wallet. That's true, eh? That's the last area to be redeemed. <laughs> and if we, can, if we can focus on that. But is there somebody, is there a family, and is there someone on your radar who is struggling, and maybe you could make a contribution? You know, if there's not, you can make a contribution to the relief fund. There's a general way of, of being a blessing to others that will be in need, even though you'll, you may never know them. But open-handedness is not just looking for those who might be in dire need or have a particular need. It's simply asking, how can I, in the course of every day, use my money as a blessing to others? Is there a way I can bless somebody? They may or may not be in need right at the time, but can I just be a blessing to them? 
The very last night that Anna and I were in the States, two years after the first one, we were having dinner at this Mexican restaurant in Pinto Beach, California, and we just bumped into a couple there. They happened to have a New Zealand connection, had been working in the Navy and was stationed in New Zealand for a while. We were chatting to them before we, waited, uh, before we had a, got a table, just in the foyer area there, and struck up conversation. It was great. And then we went off to our tables, never saw them again. And we went up after our meal to uh, pay for our food, and they'd picked up our drinks for us. They'd already gone, they'd left the restaurant, and we had no contact details for them, they'd just wandered off. But they'd just, on the basis of generosity and a warm conversation we'd had with them, picked up our drinks, which was just lovely. There's a lot of different ways that this could look, there's a lot of different things that this might be. But is there a way you could just bless somebody? Could you buy a coffee for someone and take it into work for a colleague this week? Not someone you want to date with, you know, (laughs) not that, it's not that motivation. All right? But just to be a blessing. Just to be a blessing for someone. Could you, you know, when, it, when, when, when you're looking to split the bill and pay for half, whatever, could you say, hey, you know, put, your, put the wallet away, this is, this is on me. Again, I, I'm not encouraging recklessness. Talk about this stuff with others that are going to be affected, by the way, by your decisions. <laughs> Family. But are there ways, are there small ways that we can be generous people? Because as we do this, and, and those of you that have practiced some of this know, the greatest blessing, I think, comes back on you. Because there's something, and I'm, I'm not great at this at all, but the, the few times I've practiced it, you just feel something in your own heart shift. You just feel that tight fist just start to crack open a bit. There's nothing more satisfying than just feeling your own heart begin to soften and become a bit more pliable. And, and your grip, your white-knuckled grip on your finances, just start to open just a little bit. As you become a little bit more generous to other people, you're feeling your character start to change. And it takes time. It's like a muscle that we need to work on. It's not easy at first, but it becomes a little bit more natural over time. The blessing of seeing someone else blessed is huge. The blessing of seeing that gratitude. And we don't do it for recognition and we don't do it for glory. In fact, if you can give anonymously, even better. But just to know that that has been a blessing on another family, just to know you've been instrumental in some small, minuscule way in bringing a blessing into the life of someone else. There's a deep, deep, deep sense of satisfaction there and a deep blessing. And the blessing of simply being drawn further into communion with God. God's very nature is abundance. God's very nature is generosity towards us. And when we develop this virtue in our lives and we are more open-handed towards others, we are drawn into greater communion with a very, very generous God. Our character is conforming to the image of Christ who embodied this type of generosity. And it's a rich blessing for our relationship with God. Those of you who are parents, you know that when you see your your kid there in the toy pen, there's just nothing more satisfying than seeing them give that toy to the other child. And Joshua doesn't do it as much as we'd like him to, but you know, you know how much it warms your heart and you don't want to brag on your kids, but when you, when, you, when you see them share and when you see them take something and go up and give it to another child, you just think, man, that's, that's my boy. And, and can we just bottle that character and can we just keep it going through the years? And Lord, would you enable him to have that kind of generous heart when he's older? I think that's God's disposition towards us as he looks at us, isn't it? Out of his, the abundance he's given us on this 
planet and in our lives. When he sees us with a soft heart, open our hands toward others. I'm sure he says, that's my son. That's my daughter. I'm proud of you. And let me work with you to keep that character going. (coughs) There's a deep blessing that comes from an open-handed life. And that's what it truly means to be rich toward God. Let's pray. (coughs) Excuse me. Just want to ask you to do a, a little exercise with me just as your as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed this morning. Just want to ask you, if you're willing, to take your hands and place them on your lap. And just open them up. Open handed posture of hands facing up, just sitting there on your lap. And it's just a small sign and, and symbol, first, of you just receiving from God. God, our hands are open, firstly, in a posture of receiving from you and just reminding ourselves of everything you've given us. God, we go through life feeling like we're so hard done by and have so little, and we just acknowledge in this moment we have a gracious and sufficient and abundant God who has richly blessed us in so many ways. And we just freely receive from you this morning and remind ourselves of your sufficiency in our life, of your abundance in our life that you are enough for us and your grace is sufficient for us. And so now, Lord, our hands are open in a posture of giving. Our hands are open because we desire to be open-handed people, not to be tight-fisted and clutch too strongly those things that you've given us, the money that you've given us. We want to be open-handed towards those who are in need. We want to be open-handed however and wherever we can. And we ask now, Spirit of God, that in this moment you might just place on our hearts and in our minds the name, the face of somebody that we could be open-handed to this week. God, just one way, big or small, whatever it is, God, just one way, one person, one family, that we could show generosity to, that we could show open-handedness to this week. Would you press that, that person's name, face on our heart? And God, we want to say to you now that we are willing to act on this. That we will step out in faith and in trust that you'll look after us. And we will lean into that opportunity you've given us this week to be open-handed people. And we pray that it wouldn't just be this one-off thing this week, but you would form the character of generosity and the virtue of open-handedness within us, always grounded in the abundance of God shown to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your abundance to us. Make us open-handed people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz Thank you.